Hello and welcome to Dopey, the podcast about drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. And we have a very special guest on the phone uh, from Los Angeles, Ashley. Speaking of dumb shit. <laughs> Speaking of dumb shit, we have Ashley on the phone. How are you? <laughs> I've been called worse, trust me. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm all right. I'm a little cold. My hands are shaking a little bit. I haven't eaten in a day because i got to get this colonoscopy tomorrow. And uh, I'm getting ready to start the prep for it, and that should be fine. I mean, the first thing it says, um, uh, this product will give you diarrhea. I'm like, that's great. That's fantastic. So that's what I look forward to tonight. So is this the first time you've you've taken colonoscopy medication, pre-colonoscopy? I had it once before, and I really liked it. So I was like, how much to do this every week? Well, the, the, the real question is, though, like, fucking, you're, Ashley is a, a hardcore uh, drug addict in recovery. How, how would you compare colonoscopy medicine with, with kicking or with, or with drugs? Like, is there a parallel anywhere there? You know, it's, it's crazy. I, I guess because of the abdominal thing, especially, like, with the opiates, um, once you come off them, you know, that's just crazy about, like, heroin. It does everything opposite. You know, you can sleep on it all the time. You can, like, you, know, you never have to worry about going to the bathroom. Then you come off it, and then you can't sleep. You're pooping all the time. You're freezing. But I, I feel like um, what's, the, what's the weirdest part is that it reminds me of when I was a child, and I had, uh, I had spastic colon. So they used to they, they prescribed me 14 phenobarbital. That's kind of how it started with, like, phenobarbital. It kind of reminds me of that same feeling my stomach feels like but i haven't started drinking the prep i just remember what it was like from last time and it's like it's like gnarly so i would compare it more with like drinking tap water in tijuana all right well there you go um fucking phenobarbital i don't i know yeah. you haven't listened to too much dopey but um my my partner who died over the summer his classic story was in a blackout he went to rob a veterinarian for phenobarbital and he like Ugh. rubbed up a veterinarian and and in a blackout and and went to jail over that he actually did it a year in jail for trying to you know rough up uh, a vet in los angeles for phenobarbital so whenever i hear about I, I used to have to take phenobarbital when i would go to detox but whenever i hear about phenobarbital it just makes me think of uh, chris which is funny and sad. How did, he, how did he pass away? He relapsed over the summer and he overdosed on fentanyl. He had four years clean. Oh man, it's so scary. I relapsed after five. So brutal. You you want you you said you relapsed once after you had five years clean? Yeah, I was. Um, I was. I tell you what. So I was like five, I was five years clean. Um, I was in this band called the Wonder Girls, which was me and Scott Wyland from Stone Temple Pilots. I'm sure you remember Scott. Um, and was that after people. Stone Temple Pilots or before Stone Temple Pilots? No, it was after. It was during, like, like right before, like, number five, whatever. How is this not uh, in my notes? All right, start over. I don't know. You got to check it out. You got to look it up. Dude, all right, start over. But it was me, it was me him, uh, uh, Troy Van Loon from Queens of the Stone Age, uh, Martin Lenova from Porno for Pyros, Matt Sorum, uh, Jay Gordon from Orgy. And so you don't say Matt group. Sorum from Guns N' Roses and the Cult. You just say Matt Sorum? Yeah, our Velvet Revolver, yeah. All right, yeah. continue. A lot of stuff. Yeah. Um, but uh, but uh, we were doing that, and Scott was still, like, struggling at that time. And I was clean. Everybody in the studio was pretty much getting loaded, and I was, like, the only sober dude in there. And I was, like, working with all these guys I really loved and I always, always looked up to. And uh, and I just felt like I was, like, the, 
the party like crasher like they're like oh here he comes you know <laughs> like the sober guy you know? <laughs> when you're that guy yeah it looks really good man i was like oh, it looks so much so much fun and then i had to have uh, like a foot surgery and they give me vicodin man and like I just remember, I'm so scared, even to get put out tomorrow, I get so scared because, like, I always say, you know, it may be for justified reasons, but the disease doesn't know the difference, you know, once that feeling's inside us. And so it scares me. And so I remember I started taking them, and then I started taking, like, a few more of them, and here and there, and I said, hey, Scott, what do you think? I'm out? You know, do you think I've relapsed? He goes, yeah, you're, you're out for sure. And I remember this is where I relapsed. This is crazy. So I get a call from uh, Mary Wyland, his his. Uh, his wife worried about where he was. Is he at the studio or not? I go no. And, and my girlfriend Sarah Foster, he was uh, was David Foster's daughter, um, was really close with Mary. And so I said, let's go over there. And she was really worried, whatever. And so kind of Sarah was helping her. And then I hear the door close, and then it's Scott. And I, you know, it's, it's that dopey look when you look at somebody in the eyes and you know they're they're holding. Yeah. You know, they just cops. Uh -huh. it's, 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 it's something we don't have to say to each other. It's just a look in the eyes. And that's why I said, man, do you think I'm out? And he goes, bro, the way you've been taking this bike then? Yes. And I said, hit me up. Like, he prepared speedball for him. I didn't even, I didn't even slam myself. I mean, I, I always did, but at the time I, I did it because it was the first time after five years, and I stuck out my arm. And then he hit me, and I was just like, well, this has got to be like, this is too much probably. This has got to be like way, way too much, you know, because I just, I just relapsed. You know, this is going to be, oh, my God, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, oh, my God, I'm going to die. And then as soon as you don't, you're like, oh, can I have another one? Right. And I remember... <laughs> Right after that, I had to drive Sarah back to where we were living, and she was like, what's wrong with you? I go, nothing, nothing, nothing. I'm just really tired. And she's never seen me. I've been with her for four or five years, so she's never seen me loaded, whatever. And then I tell her, you know, like, and she didn't believe me at first, you know, because she never knew that world or that, you know, that, that part of me that I become once I start using drugs again. And so it was like, it was so gnarly. I remember, like, the heartbreak in her eyes, you know, and then... And then, like, six months later, we're broken up. And the next day after that, I'm downtown with Scott. We're smoking crack and shooting dope. And I'm like, this is after five years. Like, it never existed. Like, it never happened. Right. It's like, just gone. It was like... It's just it, gone. Right. It's it's funny and because so, because I when I'm, I'm sober, uh, you know, three and a half years sober, and, uh, and I'm very grateful to be three and a half years sober, and I feel like that about the last time I got high. Like it's so it's so far away in my head now that like when I hear a story like that when I hear a story like that that's some fucking dopey shit right there and uh, it totally conjures it all up and then you're like wait a second I'm that guy too and you forget that you're both people at once you know what I'm saying I know I know and it's like I always say sobriety is so paper thin like it's just so paper thin we don't realize it you know it's so fragile but it can look and so thick and real until until you take. Vicodin and then you remember who you are or who you were or whatever it and, is and that, that's the scariest thought is like even when you know you're going past the, the mountain you're still lying to yourself it's not like oh crap what did I just do it's like oh crap why haven't I been doing this for five years right you know, it's like oh where have like, you been I, rem I remember you I love you <laughs> yes that's what's so scary about it. like why did I ever stop this right no of course so let me ask you a, just a sort of technical question um, when you're downtown with Scott Weiland, uh, smoking crack and shooting dope, are you actually smoking crack downtown in LA? 
no, we're like, went down to the cop. But he's like, I, 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 I was so terrified of always having to kick and counting because it's just no fun. So, like, I was always really careful. Like, I would wait till like, I had, a, like, a cop, you know, at least a place in the alley or a box or whatever it was, you know, when I lived down there. But this time we just picked it up and he would start smoking crack right in the passenger seat. And just, nobody had tint on the windows. And it was just, like, families of, like, five looking over in their station wagon to us. And he's just smoking crack with his mohawk. I go, this is why you get busted all the time, dude. Right, right. That's <laughs> so crazy. It's so crazy. I remember actually one time we didn't have a pipe and he showed me that you could smoke crack on the when we had car we had, we had car lighters back in the day you remember the little lighters you uh-huh. plug in yeah. you push in and you put it out and you put the crack on the top and then you just smoke that smoke and it actually works it's crazy that was the wide, the Wideland uh, technique for crack smoking out of the car <laughs> apparently you yeah. can afford a pipe right right amazing so I want to know what happened to the Wonder Girls we uh, we put we actually are one of the videos leaked that we did. You should check it out. It's pretty funny. Um, so me and Scott would switch off and play guitar and sing, you know, and and Jay from Orange would sing a little bit. But um, but um, shit, my sponsors actually call me another line. But um, I'll call him back. Uh, He's like, he's like, I'm, I, he's like, I'm having a telepathic moment that you're telling a crack story on Dopey, oh, yeah. and, and my I, sponsor yeah, calls me. Yeah, exactly. It's perfect. He's in tune, man. Um, yeah. So, so, so we were just doing this, this, this record, man, and, and like, what was the question I asked? Yeah. I was asking what happened to the Wonder Girls because it's like, what a, what a great name. My memory is the better question. Well, you're full. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. One second, Ashley. We have to just say, Ashley's starving to death. He didn't eat all day. He's got this chemical coming to his body. He's got a colonoscopy tomorrow. You are totally off the hook for not remembering my brilliant Wonder Girls question. Okay, (laughs) it's okay. It's really cool. It's really cool, man. You you dig it. there's a song called Drop That Baby that's some got on YouTube. It was, wasn't from us, but it leaked out anyway, so that's cool. But uh, what happened is we made this phenomenal record, and we all decided we wanted to do this together, and Josh Abraham produced the record. And we wrote these songs like in one or two weeks, and we had so much fun. We were in the studio on a little rehearsal hall before we even started the album. We had so much fun. There was so much creativity of all these guys and this band doing this stuff. You know, Ian Asbury would come down from the cult, and like it was just, we'd have so much fun, man. And then like, and then we go right to make this album. We make this great album. And, uh, and this is back in the day, man, when, like, you just lived in studios. I mean, your food budget is what record budgets are now. Right, right. You know, like, just for the food. Like, it's so crazy what they are now. Like, nothing. And, um, and so we were just, like, loving it. We made this great record. And Scott and I walk in one day. And, um, and I walk in. And they're like, listen, we've, we've shut down uh, the studio temporarily. There's just some disagreements before the labels because we were all on different labels. So they were like arguments of who wanted what and who wanted, you know, this and that. And so they started getting in lawsuits and threatening to sue each other and kill each other. And we just all looked at each other like a bunch of musicians, no egos, loved what they were doing and wanted to put out this amazing record. So great. I'm so old and calling it a record. Um, album that we did we just loved it you know and so it got stuck in legal tape and we couldn't do anything people started slowly moving back to other projects that they were in you know their, their main project at the time and we're going to go do that that summer we we're going to do the weenie roast because like the cult was playing it's p was playing i think orbit was playing all the guys and the members of the band we were going to like close close the show with the wonder girls and getting ready to do like a seven night seven tour thing and just all fell apart man and it was like it was like just just the worst, man. That's when it all just went to shit, you know? And how long did that rel- that relapse started because you had foot surgery, and how long did the run go? Seven years, bro. Wow. 
seven years, I couldn't get back, you know. So you had five, you had gotten yourself five years, and, and, and when you got the five years, was it the same? You have eight years now, right? No, I don't have eight years now. How many do you have now? A year. I'm coming up in a year next month. Oh, dude, I thought you were Mr. Sober. I'm just kidding. No, I'm just I, I, had kidding. Like, I had five years, and I was seven years out, and then I was sober again for like three years, and then four years, and then like you read all the stuff, but people don't. People don't know, you know. Now I'm just so brutally honest about it, like that. I don't, you know. No, I, I appreciate I, that. I appreciate yeah. that a lot. Um, you know, w- um, was the five years but, the longest? Yeah, five was the longest. Yeah, yeah. What were you about to say? I, I have a terrible habit of interrupting, so forgive no, it's me. No, right. it's just like you just forget. Like it's if you get it for the first time and, and, and get it, it's so magical, man. And then you throw it away, and every time you relapse, it makes it harder and harder to stay clean. You know, and like. It's such a gift that has to be guarded, you know. Um, it's just, it's just, it's just a fascinating disease, you know. Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. And and uh, and what do you do? Like, we'll, we'll do the flip side of it right now, real quick. What yeah, do you I love do? Scott, man, he was like a brother to me. I, I miss that dude every day. You know, I've seen. I, you know, like my sponsor said when I first came around, he goes, you know, buy a really nice suit. I go for what? He goes, he's gonna bury a lot of people around here. You know. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I did uh, drugs. I did heroin for at least 12 or 13 years. And, you know, I've done drugs a lot longer. And nobody was dying until uh, I got clean. And then I got clean and, like, two of my best friends died over the summer. And, and, and all these people, you know, I mean, I guess when you do a show about heroin addiction, a lot of people are going to die yeah. around it. And everybody is, yeah. and especially with this fentanyl, everybody's just fucking dying and uh and it's it freaks me out because I love doing this show, and uh, and I love our audience. Our audience is so involved with the show, and they're very vulnerable. You know what I mean? They're like us. They're people who who some of them have more time than us, and some of them have less time than us, and some of them are using right now. Um, when you when you got back from the run, what was your first move? Like, what was the end of the last run? Which which we mean before I got clean this time? Uh huh. Well, it was, you know, like, as I got a little older, I started to, so I, I was great with doctors, man, and, and I had to travel a lot for just playing or doing a movie wherever I was. Like, I always have to travel, always do TSA, and you get to a certain point where you're like, it's really hard to shoot dope and keep that under wraps. So I, I had a doctor where you could just go, and he, he had a pharmacy next door and was connected, like, through the back room. And so you'd just be like, all right, I want liquid Demerol, I want liquid Dilaudid, I want liquid fentanyl. You know, some liquid morphine. Not, don't love the morphine, but I'll take it. And it give you ten mil, you know, ten mil liquid things in syringes with your name on it, so you could travel where you, you wanted to go. Well, that's how it worked. Explain that a little bit more. So, so you were an addict, and you had f- film doctors who were going to make sure that you got through it. Is that the idea? Yeah. Wow. Yes. So, but but why not have like you know like heroin? It's, it's great, but it's like. 16, 70% pure. Now, pharmaceuticals, Dilaudid, is 100% pure. The kick's much harder from pharmaceuticals when you're slamming those than it is from the street dope. Yeah. Because it's 100%, you know, like, and people don't realize that. And it's like a gnarly, gnarly kick. But I was doing that, and then, you know, as you get older, veins go. And then I started just doing pills and drinking. And so got to the point where, like, I kept coming in and out. I get, like, three months, four months, five months, maybe six, and then, like, back out. And I just, I still thought of it as, like, I don't know. I just, I can't, you know, you just don't know why it happens. And it gets worse, and things happen, and you black out. And, 
fact that I'm not in prison for the rest of my life is like unbelievable to me, man. And I just, I don't know. I don't, I can't say what it is. You know, people are always like, what's different this time? Like, I, I don't know, you know, like I can't really tell you what's different. I mean, I'm not doing like dirtbag shit. I'm not being shady. You know, I'm being honest. I'm working a program, you know, but like I've had two and a half years been a secretary as a meeting sponsor, a ton of guys walked across the street to an ER because that's where I do my best performances to get high and get high after two and a half years. So it's like cunning, baffling, and powerful, you know? It talks about in the book, like, you know, that moment when there's nothing between us and the alcohol or drugs. Right. And it's, that's the heavy thing. It's like, are you in A or AA? Uh, I'm both, but AA. Me too. Yeah, me too. Me too. But it's like, it's like, so like, we get to the book, right? And so I was just having this conversation with somebody today. Is I started doing transcendental meditation in the last six months, and it's been a game changer. Hold on, time out, time out, time out. Where did you get the mantra? Who gives you the mantra? So I went here because because a lot of the TM places they're based just on Hinduism principles and mantras, and they like can cost a lot of money, but. David Lynch has a foundation here, the director, where there's a sliding scale, so you pay what you can. And I, I went to it, you know, and it like it's it changed my recovery. Wait, so you're saying you're like, saying David Lynch has mantras on the cheap? <laughs> yeah, totally slanging mantras on the cheap. Your first one's free, right? I need uh, a mantra, man. Could you hook me up? You have to come here and tend it in private. I can't, like, yeah. God yeah, damn it. I don't think you can phone it in. I really think that transcendental meditation is, like, it's the secret to the next level. I really believe that. So, so here's the thing, right? Yeah. So, like, this is where I'm going with all this. So we get to the book, right, Lock Off Synopsis, and then we get to, like, we agnostics. It says, God is everything or nothing, right? It's your choice. So I can say, okay, the program is everything or nothing. It's your choice. So it's not 11 and a half steps, you know, 11 steps, not through prayer and meditation. Everybody skips out in meditation, and it has to be everything or nothing. I'm with you. you. Know, it's like those half, those half measures. I can't do those half. If I'm fully in and the program's everything, then I got to do everything. Right. You know, and, and you, but you, I mean, like, because I find that meditation, like, what I'll do for my meditation practice is not like the best thing. I'll put on a guided meditation while I'm on the Long Island Railroad and hear some English person tell me how to have a good day. But it's something, you know. I zone out. I, I you know what I mean. I leave myself, and I, I do achieve some sort of peace. You know, there's a million different definitions of but, meditation. But, but, bro, you're, you're like. You're seeking, right? And God's in the seeking, not the knowing. It's about it's about the seeking, right? I mean, it says in the book, like, AA is but a spiritual kindergarten, so we have to continue to seek. Right. You know, like... Right. So, so you, I, just, I just didn't, like, not knowing correctly how to do it, that, like, I saw so many friends of mine around here in L.A. go do that, and I go, okay, here we go, for a new fad. But I saw them do this, I saw them... Not by what they said, but I saw their actions and their demeanor and how they were and how they changed. You mean the TM? That's what, the TM. Yes. And okay. I'm like, that's what, I, I want that. Like, that's what I want, you know? And so I just started doing it. I couldn't, I could not meditate, man, two minutes a day. Two minutes a day, but no way. And when they said 20 minutes twice a day, I'm like, that's never going to happen. I'm sorry. Never going to happen, you know? And um, So where's your so practice at now? 20 minutes twice a day. Sometimes I have to do 40, but... Yeah, 20 for sure. And you just chant the meditation? Do you do it aloud or in your head? No, you got to do it in your head because it's, it's really worked on the pineal gland, the gland, the third eye, right? So, like, the words are Sanskrit. They're from the oldest meaning of, like, words in Sanskrit that you can't, like, there's just power. Everything's, everything's vibration and, and, and frequency, and it gets you to this frequency where it, it vibrates you through different energies and stuff, and it's, like, it's phenomenal, man. 
Isn't it so funny how you can go from needing the liquid fucking Dilaudid to getting the Nam Yoho Rangay Kyo? Like, like, isn't it just so amazing? Like, I find that to be one of the more, like, almost intimidating aspects of recovery. Because, like, we're these dirt bags, you know what I mean? Like, we're these people that will do anything, you know, in any situation. And then we become the people that have to do the next right thing in order to live. You know, and it's, yeah. a, and it's a big expectation, I'd say, on, on, on an addict. You know, um, I do believe for me, like the idea of, uh, you know, I loved when they talked about finding your truest self and then and when you peel the layers, you see who you actually are. But it's so funny, you know, when you're talking about this third eye vibration, you know, after you talked about, you know, smoking crack off the cigarette lighter. It's just amazing. It's just such an amazing spectrum, don't you think? No, it, it is. And it's such a journey, you know, like. Thing is, addicts were so used to that like, instant gratification. I just like that in way. But the problem is that's that's a temporary solution for this lifetime problem we have, right? That's that that eventually ends. That that thing. Like when I first time I shot up, man, I fell to my knees and I thank God. And the reason was because I felt complete. I felt like I could go, always try people. I always felt in my own skin. Most addicts feel that way. And shot, I. I'm like, now I can do this life thing. It wasn't rebellious, like, screw you or any of this stuff. It was like, okay, now I can look people in the eyes and feel okay. That's all I was looking for. That, to me, was the keys of the kingdom, you know? And then it turns on you one day, and you become a slave that none of that's there. Now you have all the pain back, all the stuff's worse, and you're just trying to not get sick. Right. Like, that's why, I don't, that's why I don't agree with maintenance. I'm like, I don't want maintenance. Like, why do I want maintenance? Like, okay, if it's harm reduction, it's, it's for you to be on it for a while so you can step down. I'm all for that. But the end game is not that. The end game is recovery. You can't recover if you're not, like, fully abstinent. That's just my experience, you know? Like, I had the same experience. Have, I had the same experience. Yeah, and people may have different experiences, and that's okay. That This is just what works for me. And, like, I, I don't want to be a slave, man. Like, I need to feel, I need, the one thing I would say is, I, the one thing I hate is people, but the one thing I need is people. I need that connection like what we're doing right now i have to have that and if i have something in my system i'm blocked from the sunlight and spirit which is you because i'm blocked from you and i'm never being honest i'm, I'm living that double-edged life where i have these secrets i don't want to live like i have secrets anymore but authentic self i don't want to live like that man it makes me feel like a scumbag you know totally can i introduce you now a little bit sure cool so this is uh i'm gonna read the thing that i have written here because i like it this is Ashley Hamilton. He's an actor. He's a singer, songwriter, musician, an aspiring author. You're an author. I read your book. It's pretty fucking amazing. Social media editor, contributing journalist, addictions consultant, and a nationally certified food addictions coach. And I need a lot of help with that, so we're going to get to that in a second. How do you find all that stuff? Dude, I'm a fucking sleuth. I'm like the greatest yeah. podcast researcher in the history of addiction podcasts. Listen, I work as a drug alcoholic on Chuck. I know. Uh, two failed marriages, two failed careers, oh, yeah. fucking 32 rehabs, five overdoses, three flatlines, two comas, paralysis, brain surgery, spleen surgery, staph infection in the heart, gangrene of the arms, drug deal shootout, dozens of arrests by age 22, and he married Shannon Dougherty. This is a fucking dopey legend right here. Welcome to the show. And just in that order, too, that was rock bottom. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. No, no. The most amazing, I, I was reading, because Ashley sent me a, a sort of, I don't know if that was, it was a version of your book or notes from the book or uh, maybe it was a book Excerpt. proposal. Excerpts. 
And yeah. um, and the first one that really reached out to me was because um, I have da- Ashley loves this Danny Sugarman character, and oh. uh, and I love Danny Sugarman too. I remember when I was wow. in high school, I just he just came alive to me because it was like it was right before the Doors movie came out, and he was doing a ton of press. And uh, yeah. and I was just like in awe of this guy, and somehow you you had the same sort of reaction, huh? Yeah, yeah. I read that book. That's so that's so crazy. You bring that up, man, because like not a lot of people know, but some do. And it was so powerful, man. That's why how words are so powerful. I I had tried by that time I was like seventeen. I loved you know smoking weed, and I tried a bunch of drugs, coke, this and that, but nothing. And for some reason, when I read that book and it described dope, I was like. That's how I want to feel. So when people are like, I don't want to grow up and be a junkie, I'm like, I did. Right. Like, you know, that that's what I wanted to feel. The way it described in that book, that was the feeling I was going for. And I read that. And the guy in that book, uh, his name was Dallas in the book. He was the stepfather of the girl Danny was dating, worked at a bar that's no longer around called Coaches and Horses. His real name was Richard. And it mentioned Coach and Horses in the book. And I don't know how long before that was actually, like, written, you know, how long that happened before the book came out. I think it was, like, 10, 15 years or something. But I went to that bar, and I found out the dope dealer that was in the book, Dallas, that was, you know, the, the stepdad of the, the daughter and all that stuff. And I seeked him out, man. Like, I don't know how. And he was still working behind the bar. How old were you? Later, how old were you? Later. How old were you in that story? I was uh, 17. That's insane. So you uh-huh. know, you know that this... This legendary heroin dealer works at this legendary bar in L.A. Like, like yeah, that wasn't even his name. It was like, and it was. I think it was written fifteen, twenty years prior to that. But I just, I was on a mission, man. Like, I was like, this is what I want to do right here. I want to find this feeling he's describing. So tell the story a little bit. So I walk in. I walk in, man. Like, and I remember, like, I remember uh, Bad Moon Rising was playing by CCR. You know. Uh, sign of things to come probably and uh, I sit at the bar I go sit down and I look at him man he, he looks like how he's described in, in the book but I'm like it's gonna be weird if I just go up to this new be like hey man can I get some heroin like and you're like, a kid like, you're a kid right I'm a punk kid man yeah. like and uh, and he has he looks like he looks like a full old school like hell's angel slash pirate with like an eye patch on the long hair you know, no teeth. He, he would piss in people's drinks behind the bar, you know, just to serve him the beer. And I was like watching all this going, Jesus, this is crazy. And uh, I spoke to him and I, I started to warm him up a little bit. You know how we are dope fiends before even doing dope. We're still good manipulators. And so I started like warming up and then brought up the book and he bit. And I was like, okay, you know, and then I asked him for some heroin. He goes, no, I don't do that anymore. So I stuck it through, hung out the rest of the night. He goes, okay. So he gave me my first bit of dope, and uh, that's the only place I knew how to get it. I didn't even know where to get it, you know? And so I smoked it, and, like, that was the first night I hit my knees before I even slammed. I was like, I smoked it, he goes, oh, my God. And then I would get it from him all the time, and I would watch him slam, you know? And I was 17, I was still living my mom's, man, and she had syringes in her room, and I slammed. I remember exactly, like... I remember exactly where it was, what time it was. Like, I hit like I've been doing that my whole life. Like, I shot that needle in, hit that vein. It registered like I've been doing this forever in past lifetimes, you know? Right. And um, and it hit you exactly the way you wanted it to hit you the first time. Correct. And correct. did you say your mom had syringes in her room? Yeah, yeah, like vitamin B. They're on a little B12 on stuff. Right. They're like hippies, you know? Right. Whatever. Um, and I just, and that was it, man. I just... Just 
that was it. And then eventually, like, he had this old wife named Mary, and I would go shoot dope in their apartment. And then, you know, cocaine got introduced. So it was in Speedballs, in this apartment. I was with these junkies. They were, like, 50 years old at the time. Yeah. You know, and they'd be like, hey, kids, slow down. And I was just, like, on it. And then I found the drug dealer outside, the Mexican dude, Chewy. And he's like, you know, man, they're ripping you off. I was like, they are? So I started going straight to him. You right, know, like, right. And then it's just off and running, man. And, and uh... And I was willing to lose everything in my life or throw everything away for that, man, for that feeling, as we all know what that's like, you know? Yeah, I, when I was a, a kid, I, there was a guy, I had a, a dealer living in my apartment, you know, a, a dope dealer living in my apartment. And this old man came over to buy dope, and he had all these pills. He just had, like, just, you know, benzos up the ass and painkillers <laughs> up the ass. And I had all these old cameras. And he was like, oh, these he was he was actually a, he was a professor at Brooklyn College. He was a printmaking wow. professor. And um, and he goes, oh, these cameras are very cool. Uh, would you be interested in selling me them? And I was like, dude, just give me the pills and you can have them. And uh, so I wound up trading all these old metal body cameras for these pills. And this guy was like, he was like a 70-year-old professor at Brooklyn College. And I started hanging out with him and his wife and shooting dope in their loft uh, in Soho. And I would, and, and me and him, I would be like 20 and he was like, you know, 65 and we'd wander around Soho copying and, uh, and getting high. So I understand that experience, you know, like being yeah. this kid and then, but there's something very mystical about it. And you yeah. know that this guy has answers and, and in your situation, I mean, you're, you're dealing straight out of a book, a fantasy book that you were into, you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's like, yeah. and, but you came from an incredibly famous family uh, yeah. Did these people know about that? Were were they getting off on your story at the same time or no? I'm sure to some degree, like, you know, it was right around the time. Yeah, you know, it was right around the time I did my first big movie, which was the dog movie, Beethoven Second, when I was a kid. And that movie was, like, huge at that time, you know. And so there was a lot of stuff out, and then, you know, your family and all that stuff. And I just, like... I wanted to fight against the image so much, you know, like... You were like the goody-two-shoes, good-looking little teenager kid, whatever. That, yeah, just like the Zac Efron. And I right. just was like so not... Like, it was like Nirvana and all that other stuff. And I was just so like... The darkness I was so intrigued by. You know, now if I could go back, I wouldn't have given a shit. I'd be like, yeah, let's do this. I'll, 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 I'll be like Freddie Prince Jr., no problem. You know, like... Right. It just, it just was like... It just was just thing, man. And I think because I had like resentments for my family for that, and I just kind of wanted like I felt more comfortable shooting dope downtown with dope fiends, you know, than I did in the circle I grew up with. You right. know, everybody's like, oh, I wish you know Hollywood, blah blah blah. I felt so uncomfortable from the get go that I just felt better shooting dope like in cardboard boxes or wherever I was. I was like, I'd rather hang out with those people than the people I'm surrounded with because at least I know what I'm dealing with. Do you think you know? it was the privilege that made you uncomfortable? Like you didn't know why you should have everybody kissing your ass or why things should come easily, whereas like those people in the tough situations, like, you know, nobody gives a shit about them and it's almost more comfortable. Like I know I grew up very middle class, but still the privilege was too much for me. And, like, I needed to, to exist where I, I didn't mean anything to anybody. You know what I mean? Like, I, I didn't have any. I needed to not have any. Did, do you think your privilege was, was something that, that bothered you? I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know, you know. I, I really, I really don't know. I, I, you didn't uh, look at it like that. 
That's all right. No, I just I just wanted to escape. I mean, a lot of a lot of a lot of shit. You know, early on in my life, and all this stuff happened, and I just wanted to get away. You know, and I had so much resentment because of stuff that happened, and I just I just wanted to get as far away as I, I could. You know, but the problem is you can never get away from it when you're like and grow up in that kind of light. You can never just be a worker amongst workers. You know, you can never just be you. There's always judgment crossed. I guess, and that's where I felt. I guess is that that kind of thing you know and, and so I'm not saying poor me or anything man but I just I just grew up man like wanting to feel okay and I never did you know and that's that's like the heroin thing wasn't a rebellious thing for me it was like I was seeking a solution for this life problem I had inside you know which is the story for most of us you know right the heroin was as peace the heroin would give you peace peace yes correct Right? And that's all, that's what we want so much of it. You know, that's why I say like, it's so important in recovery that like we do this stuff. So we have peace, man, because it's the mind that always takes me back or takes me back to dope before, you know, the obsession of the mind, the analogy of the body, like the, the, the obsession of that mind is so powerful that it looks in that stuff as, as release when it's not, you know? Yeah. It's amazing. I had, a kid, I had a kid two years ago, you know? And so I just like, I want her, I don't want her to grow up the way. You know, I did. I'm not saying, oh, poor me, like I had great family, all that stuff. Yes, all that stuff. But I wanted to be present for her in her life. And I was, you know, she's never seen me loaded. I wasn't around her. I was loaded, not to make excuses. It was like, I, like I told you, I get like six months, three months, go out for four days. And, um, you know, I just, I just got tired. And I was willing to do this time. I was willing to do whatever it took, you know. And, and I really looked at, like, the, you know, the doing the drug and alcohol counseling and stuff. Like, something in me always wanted to, to do that. And I started doing the school online over the, the past, like, years. I was, like, sober, you know, months here and there just because I like to learn anyway. And I just, I just was like, you know, the problem is I just directed a movie last year, too, and you go and you work nonstop and you're surrounded by tons of drugs and it's very hard to go to, you know, you go to another state or wherever you are, another country, you're surrounded by it and your head starts going, well, how, they're working 18 hours, how do I do that? Oh, here's a Adderall. Oh, well, it's doctor prescribed, I need it for work. And it just started, like, messing with me and then you come back to nothing, to, to zero. And that isolation, man, like, so to have, like, a nine-to-five job, man, like, I'm so grateful for that. And I'm so grateful for where I'm at that, like, I just make that my main priority. And the thing, the problem with working in treatment is it's not my recovery. I love it. Your relapse rate actually goes up statistically when you work in treatment. I love it. I love it. Love being around kids who are dope fiends and alcoholics like myself. It makes everything else in life so worthwhile to actually see, like, maybe you can help somebody who's gone through what you've gone through. I love being in that every day, that environment, you know, but I also have to, though, work my program so I can continue to be there and be of service and not get stuck in all that. I think, I think, I think it was, uh, that, that was really hard for Chris because he, I think that was something that, that did him in because he was working in sober living and it's possible that he was confiscating drugs and it, and it fucked him up. Yeah. But what, what was the scenario when you found out you were going to be a father? Um, it's, it's a tricky one, man. Like I, I need to always word this stuff you know, carefully because there's other people involved, you know what I'm saying? Uh-huh. Um, um, you know, when, when my, when my daughter's mother got pregnant, I was still using and, yeah, uh, me too. and I wound up, uh, you know, I, I tried to get clean and I wound up just smoking weed for a little while, but, yeah. but that didn't last. 
and uh, and then I, I started taking Xanax and 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 Klonopins, yeah. and yeah. then and then it turned into dope, and yeah. uh, and I would go to I remember I would go to the live birth classes with her, and I'd have the drugs in my in the little pocket in my jeans, and uh, and, and it took me a few years uh, to get better, which is why like your daughter's two years old, right? Yeah, and uh, and you're doing so good. It's it's an amazing thing. You know what I mean? She doesn't ever have to see you get loaded. You know what I'm saying? It's just a, it's a blessing. Yeah, it, 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 it is, you know, and um, it's just, it's, it's a beautiful thing. I just can never do it more than today. Like, I, I can't promise anything more than today and putting my head down tonight. You know, I, I just can't. You know, I really, that whole day at a time thing is so brilliant when you really, like, yeah. get that concept at your heart. You understand what it actually means. Totally. I got a problem, yeah. man. I got a problem. We all got problems. You talk to the right person. No, I've got, I got a little problem here. And, I, and, and I'm really... Can you call tomorrow? <laughs> no, I need, I need to drive my father-in-law home. Can I, get, can okay. I call you back in 10 minutes? All right, so I'm back from my father-in-law. He was very impressed. Uh, what's that, up, by the way? He was very impressed that I had you uh, on the phone. <laughs> nice. He said. He said that. He said, "Oh, he's had to drink the the colonoscopy drink." He had a uh, he had a very dread sound in his voice when he said that. Uh, I, I know it's it's the worst. It's the worst. Like like I said, it's the analogy of like naltrexone. Here, you're high on this heroin. You want some naltrexone? You're gonna go to me, withdraw on cramps. You're gonna be sick as a dog. You know, like. Is that what this thing is gonna make you feel like? What's it gonna make you feel like exactly? It's going to make you, like, cramp up, shit your pants. The first thing, it gives you massive diarrhea. It's the first thing on the label. That's what it's for. It clear everything out of your system. And I, I'm the biggest baby, bro. I'm a dope fan. I do not like being sick, feeling sick, sweating, having cramps, pooping everywhere. It's just not my idea. I don't think it's anybody. I use a fun time. But, you know, just not looking forward to, like, I'm so, like, sensitive to that shit, you know? Yeah. It reminds me of, like, every time, like, when you knew the run was over. Uh you know, and you're like, it's time to batten down the hatches, and you know the uh, run is over. That depression? How about that depression when you know it's over, and you gotta, like, it's that loneliness right there. It's so terrible. Well, it's like, that's why when people ask me, like, what they should do, I always just say, you have to go away. You have to go someplace. You have to, man. Be- right? I mean, like, I, 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 could, yeah. I couldn't even make it an hour. You know what I mean? It, it all, it's, it's like I, I run out the door. You know, unless I'm broke, and then I'll sell something. You have to Dude, go away. I cannot tell you how, many, how much shit I hacked out of my TVs, tear them off, whatever, everything. You rob, steal. I mean, it gets, it gets, no, these places. Now, here's the thing with that that's crazy is like, you can, you can, you can, I think it's going to take people out of their environment too because it's just so easy. But the hard part of that is, is if they haven't been to recovery, that they, they leave that treatment center you know, after three months, and then they come back home and they have no support of recovery. And that always scares me for people, you know? Of course. I mean, but it's like, it's funny also because you can go to treatment, right? And it can be one of these treatments that's right on the edge of one of these recovery towns. And you move into the recovery town and you wind up hooking up with the one chick who's fucking shooting dope. Or like whatever the case. You know what I mean? You can go home and have nothing, but you have the right mindset and you wind up getting recovery. Or you could be in the most sober place and have the, the wrong one thing happen. It's just such a house of cards. You know what I mean? Like I it, it's, it's unpredictable. I it's, that's the thing with it. So many people 
telling you, see, we forget. There's so many factors involved of, of recovery that, like I said earlier, it's so paper thin and we don't realize it, you know? Like, if everybody stayed sober, we wouldn't be going to, like, meetings in, in little Lano clubs. We'd be going to meetings in, uh, you know, like Madison Square Gardens, you know? Right. Right, right. It would be much bigger if the success rate was much better, is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, but it's not necessarily it's not necessarily a success rate, right? It's like, I mean, here's the thing: we have to figure out. Like they say, five percent. You know, I think they say five percent statistically with with AA. But the problem is that's how many people are actually doing the program of recovery, right? Number one, and number two, I don't know anything with better odds that I've seen or I've tried. No, me neither. I, I've had that's nothing. That's the problem. You know, I, I failed at every other. Every other style I failed at. And, but I also have to say, this is the first time I actually worked the steps. You know what I mean? Yeah. I never really tried to give myself over to a program of recovery until now. It always failed, but I never actually did it. This is the first time I actually did it, and it's like... It's, but what was it that made you finally get to that place to do that? Oh, for me, it was... Um, well, I was 41, and... Um, I, I had I had uh, I think my daughter was five then, and I had kind of carved out a little life where I would have my daughter two days a week, and all I wanted to do was put my family back together, and and my daughter's mom started visiting me in Manhattan, and she knew I smoked weed, and she was kind of looking the other way on the smoking weed, and Don't she you feel like a piece of shit inside when you know you're doing that, and people are looking at you like that. Oh, yeah, but I was like, at least I'm not doing dope. I, I also was like, I need to smoke weed. Like, weed is part of me. That's part of me. Like, that's what I do, blah, blah, blah. She comes in. We actually went, and, and I didn't tell her I had started taking pills, too. And I, and I didn't tell her. And me and her went on a date to see, and this is the funniest thing. We went on a date to see the Amy Winehouse documentary. Okay. Oh yeah. <laughs> so so like, and I've been taking pills. I've been taking clonopins every day for like ten days or something. And we're in the Amy Winehouse documentary, and I like have that kind of phantom withdrawal, like I need a pill oh. feeling. And uh, and we go home, and we wind up having sex. And I took a pill right before we had sex. And after we had sex, I ordered... No, no, we come home, I order tacos, I take a clonopin, and we had sex. After yeah. sex, I fall out from the clonopin. The tacos arrive, and, uh, and she's trying to wake me up, and I won't wake up. And then she does what women tend to do, and she goes through my phone, <laughs> and she finds out that I've been on pills. And she tells uh. me that I'm going to lose all visitation with my daughter for a year and I have to get off everything. And I'm like, what? Blah, blah, blah. And I start fighting it. But at that point, I finally realized I have no life anymore. My whole life is why can't I do what I want? Why can't I smoke pot? Why can't I take pills? Why aren't we together? Why can't I have it my way? Until finally I was like, you know what? I'm done. I'm going to try something else. You know, it was that. It was that. See that? I mean, women—they're so much smarter than men, and anybody who thinks different does not know. <laughs> like, it's crazy, they, though, right? They're so smart. They have the higher pain tolerance, and they send us out to wars. So that's how smart they are. Right? You know, it goes Ugh. like it's so crazy, man. And then things you find go through all that. You you, you want to get clean, and it's just like you said. You said it, man. You were like you were just you just you knew it was over. Like, it's like that page in six page 
between a book where it says, you know, uh, you know, selfish self-centeredness, that we think is the root of all our problems. We must get rid of this selfishness or it kills us. We must. Like, that's so crazy. And that's exactly what you're saying to me. And it was always about me, 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 my feelings, you know. And I remember when the mother of my child said to me, Ashley, you always play the fucking victim. And it hit me so deep. You know, and I was like, oh, that's what I'm doing. You know, I don't want to be the victim anymore, you know, because victims don't take care of themselves. And it was just like, it was so profound, man, that I knew, like, I knew kind of like you were saying, like, I just, I just wanted to try a different way, man. I'm so tired of living everything by how I feel. I feel this. This upsets me. Oh, I'm sensitive, like, constantly, you know? Uh, yeah, of, of course. And then I remember... I, I was like, I didn't want to give everything up. You know what I mean? I really didn't. I had jars and jars of bud. Like one of my dreams was to have many jars of many different kinds of bud. And I had achieved that dream. And I was like, I don't want to give up all this bud I have and this little weed. You know, it was like a fantasy. Yeah. I'd been a junkie my whole life. I'd always wanted to have little jars of different strains of weed. And now I did at that point. And I was like, and I was like, you know what? I'm going to go to a meeting today. I'm not going to get high. And I went to a meeting. And, and I was like, if I share at this meeting, this is day one. You know what I mean? It means I'm not going to go home and I'm not going to get high. You know, and I shared at the meeting and then I went home and I called my best friend and I gave him all my bud. And I was like, wow. I was like, enjoy, you know, and that was that. And, um, and then I went to another AA meeting. Uh, I, I needed one in the early morning because I get up fucking early. I found one on 730 in the morning, in the Y, on Houston Street in Bowery, like at the Chinatown Y. And uh, there was an old painter from New... I told my story, the story I just told you, where I was obsessed with my family and blah, blah, blah. And there was an old painter from New Zealand, and he said, we would really appreciate it if you came back tomorrow. And uh, and him saying that to me, I was like, I'll come back. You know, it was the first time anybody wanted me anywhere. Like, that wasn't like my friend. It was like, I never felt really accepted in, in like, a good community. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it was, like, beautiful. And I went back every day. And, man, just like you just said, like, that's the thing I said. I felt so much more uncomfortable hanging around with people who are, like, down and out on the streets. But, you know, addicts, really. But then those people get sober, and they're the most beautiful people in the world man like with the biggest hearts and who wouldn't want to be surrounded by that you know yeah totally like nowhere else in the world we're surrounded in a world where all that matters is like everybody's trying to get something what are you trying to get what are you trying to get but like in program we're trying to be something different to better our lives that's huge man and to give it to the next guy, which is even bigger. You know what I mean? We're these people like who did all this fucking terrible shit. And then all of a sudden, we have the chance to be the person that helps somebody. Like, that's amazing. And I always had a time, tough time doing that because I was always like, well, where's mine? Why am I not getting this? Why is he getting all this stuff? And he's sober. Like, that guy constantly, the comparative despair game. And now I'm like, the only thing that matters is like, if I haven't helped anybody today, I'm fucking wasting my life and wasting somebody else's life. Well, you're helping thousands of people in the dopey nation. So pat yourself on the back. <laughs> like, yeah, we don't want to hit like him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, that's, I mean, that's something, though, right? Right, Ashley? Don't you no, it, no, it is. And that's, the, that's the magic of that's what that's so cool about your show you doing this is like in reaching as many people as you do it's like two alcoholics addicts talking to each other right now and just being honest man like and how many people that reaches and helps and like they say for every every addict it affects seven people in their lives 
and, and you know how they are, how they feel, and that seven people affects another seven people, right? Coworkers, this because they're worried about their kid. Like it's huge, and by us just not getting high today, we're affecting so much of the world for the better, and that's so powerful. Like I said, frequency vibration earlier, that's so powerful, you know? Yeah, man, totally. How did you get in with Chuck and 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 and, and into this uh, the job? How did you go from you know you didn't have much time uh, back and when you got into it, huh? What was the story? I I knew the owner Warren uh, from for fifty years or so, and um, and I went to the program there, you know, for a couple months, and I just didn't want to leave. So I volunteered. I already had my, I already had my, uh, my KDAC, you know, yeah. CCAP, whatever. I already had that. I just had to finish some hours and they let me volunteer and put some hours there. And then I got hired, man. I just, I, I love doing groups. Like I do, that's, you know, my main thing is I do tons of groups. I love it, you know? And, um, what groups do you do? We just, you know, I, I have, oh, like, I do, like, five a week, and I have, oh, like, my own spin on it, because, like, you know, they and places and treatment, they always want to be like, okay, relapse prevention. Well, what the fuck is that? Like, relapse prevention. Like, oh, yeah, I'm going to keep a letter in my pocket and be like, oh, this is what I'm going to do if I'm going to get high. Once I get high, bro, there ain't no, like, there ain't, there ain't no doing anything. And if I'm calling you, you know, like, you know, there's times when you can call somebody when you want to get loaded and it helps. But if I'm in the mindset when I really want to get loaded, nobody's talking me out of it. So the There's no is, calling like, anybody. Like, how could you possibly call somebody? You call the fucking dealer. You know, correct, who else are you going to call? So what do we have to do so we don't end up having to call the dealer? Like, that's the thing that we say, right? Like, that's so important. Like, and I, was, I always say, man, like, if I'm not uncomfortable, man, and getting uncomfortable recovering and doing something to change, I'm going to end up very uncomfortable and shoot dope. You know, and so I have to, like, it's the mind, right? I, I just want to breathe, man. I just want to, like, I, it's not even evil, you feel like. I just want to drink and shoot some dope. I just want to, I want to breathe. I want to relax. And... I don't realize why that is, but it's not small things. You know, it's, it's not the big things that get us loaded. It's the small things. So if I'm going to tell you a little lie, hey, I'm uh, 10 minutes away when I'm 30 minutes away. You know, that's another little brick in my backpack. Hey, uh, yeah, for sure, I'll call you tomorrow. We'll hang out. I don't. That's another little brick in my backpack, and they add up, man. And right. eventually I can't stand up, and that backpack of bricks pulls me down, I'm out. You so know? so it, does that become relapse prevention then? Is that what it is? That's what I believe it is. You know, I, I don't know. I don't have a monopoly on it at all. I just believe for me and my experience, what I've seen, that's what it is, right? That's that's the stuff about like, hey, um, I don't cheat on you because, you know, I'm the righteous dude and I want to, you know, don't do the right things for the right reasons. And I should, I don't cheat you because I don't want to get loaded or I don't go take that coffee out of 7-Eleven. It's a buck 25, man. And I can rationalize and justify anything. I'm the mind of a dope fiend, you know, especially myself. I can rationalize and justify anything. And then I think to myself, is, is all my sobriety worth a dollar twenty-five? Because if it's just worth a dollar twenty-five, then I might as well get loaded right now. And that's like that's that beautiful thing we're talking about that we have. Is like it doesn't seem like a big deal, man. But like that's why I need a sponsor. That's why I need people on me to be honest. Because like you know, and there's so many places that aren't AA, and that's cool, man. You don't have to do that or NA, but like you have to have somebody that you can get honest with and take direction. Because this mind that messes you and I up so much, I can't listen to this mind. I have to run stuff by people. You know, and I always have to remember, like, you help a lot of people, man, but you're just like me. You're a dope and an alcoholic at the end of the day, you know, and I've seen so many people get egos about things. Oh, and yeah, it, man. Are you kidding? It's, and it's done and they're, and they're out, man. And I've seen it. It's just not worth it for guys like us, you know? Yeah. I mean, when we started this thing, it was not to help anybody. And I don't even know if it's to help anybody now. I, I And when we started this thing, it was to, like, laugh about the stupidest shit we ever did. That was the point of Dopey. It was to make fun of the... Because Chris was like, he was 
major league addict, you know, as are you, as am I. But he had these sto- these ridiculous stories, and he would tell them in this funny way. And I and we just it was funny, you know. And then it just so happened it wound up helping people because we were sober. You know what I mean? Like it was like a side effect. So like, what are you gonna say? No, no, go for it. I want to interrupt. No, uh, please interrupt. I wasn't. Gonna, no, I, I just, but what I was gonna say was like that's what's so cool about what you guys do because it, like the book talks about like we're not a glum lot. Like we laugh about stories that most people would be like would be horrified about, and I think so many people have. Uh, an assumption of what recovery is and I think by just you having a show like that where you can laugh and be honest about it they get to see a glimpse of what recovery really is it's fun man it's not just like shaming each other and guilting each other oh god so bad it's like us going god man I was stuck in that and would do the worst stuff in the world now I'm not you know and laugh about it and I think just that alone that honesty helps man and and I have to know you've been there for me to get honest with you I have to know you're the real deal because otherwise man alcoholics addicts were defiant and grandiose you know grandiosity and defiance of the two major characteristics and I, you can't tell me what to do I have to be like hey Dave how did you do that man how did you do that like that's what I want to do you know and that's that's what's so powerful about this thing you know it's not Tony Robbins lecturing us or whatever it's me going how, how did he do that and have you ever how, have you ever seen Tony Robbins lecture <laughs> he's got some good ones man I've always wanted to see it. I feel like between Transcendental Meditation and Tony Robbins lecturing, I could go, and AA, those three things working in concert, I could get skyrocketed into the the seventh dimension. dimension. Yeah, I'm saying I could skip the fourth. I could jump right into the seventh with a little TM, Tony Robbins, and AA. You think I'm overdoing it here? I think, uh, yeah, I think you just want to start where you can start. It's like, okay, now if I get here, you hear it. Now if I add a little weed in the mix. Oh, stop know, it. Like that's, no, right, but, but what you're saying, watch. what you're saying that I love is um, I, I like to go back to your relapse prevention group because <clears throat> I've been in so many treatments and, and so many outpatients and so many groups mm-hmm. where somebody's talking about relapse prevention and you're just like, shut the fuck up. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I never understood relapse prevention because I never had any clean time to relapse from, you know? Um, there are triggers. Hey, triggers, man. I don't, everything's a trigger. It's rainy out. It's sunny outside. Right. Like, I'm having a good day. I'm having a bad day. Like, it, what, what does that mean, you know? What you said about, you know, trying to achieve peace so you can yeah. breathe without getting high. You know, that's everything right there. It really is. Yeah. You, you said that yeah. very fast. But you said it in a re- – that's – I mean I remember whenever I stopped using, I could not catch my breath. I could not catch my thoughts. You know, it was just – I just could not get comfortable. And and thank God by by some, you know, miracle, I, I found comfortable in sobriety. Now it's the first time that ever happened, you know? Yeah, and that's what they say about us. Like, you know, if you're a real addict, man, you put down the drugs and alcohol and your life gets worse, right? And that's what like – that's what that whole first step is, is like – my analogy, the first step is, hey, Dave, you may be done with drugs and alcohol, but drugs and alcohol done with you. Right. That's the powerlessness of the, that step one. That's how powerless we are over this thing, you know? Like, and, and it's just so powerful just to realize that you have to tune it over to something that can't be yourself, man. Because this is like, you know, I mean, if you're sober today, you're a miracle, right? Like, we're miracles, bro, that we're clean right now at, like, this time of night. And, and if you're not you can be, you know, like, and that's what's so beautiful about this thing is like, how, okay, how do we get comfortable? You know, how do we, how do we get out of our self and think of something so opposite of how you and I are naturally as dopamines and what we think, 
like and what we, we personally think of. It's so hard to change all that, right? And I always say to change, like, I hate that saying, man, when they go, hey, Dave, the one thing you got changes change is everything. Yeah. Well, that's fucking great. Yeah. That's like saying, oh, well, sometimes, you, you know, you have to go left to get right. Like, what the, what does that mean? Yeah, sometimes like, you no, feel like a nut, sometimes you don't. It's like, fuck yeah, you. Right? Like, oh, yeah, it's like, there's nothing greater than waking up with, you know, yeah. crystal meth in your cup, a Folgers, <laughs> exactly, whatever. Like, yes, it's, yes, I'm with you. It's ridiculous, yeah. man. Like, but how, how I always say in like group, but we, how we change, man, is like, but what I'm doing right now, what you and I are doing right this second, how I'm acting towards you, how you're acting towards me. That's the only way we have any power because everybody's always in the future. I'm in the future. I'm in the future. There is no future. You're never going to be in the future ever. Only your head's going to think about the future. It's impossible. We can only be in the present, right? So that's so heavy. This head that we have, this diseased mind, that's what keeps getting us loaded right. over and over and over again. You know, And that's what's so scary, man. That's why I'm saying, like, that's what the unmanageability is, right? You maybe don't drugs and alcohol, but drugs and alcohol, I'm done with you, right? The unmanageability part is that, like, now that I stop, now my head's really fucking crazy. And now I really want to die, man. I've had nine millimeters in my mouth. You know, like, I've wanted to not live... Anymore, Don't like, say so another word. I want to read an excerpt from your book that I have queued up, okay. which is kind of about this. Um, can I read it? Yeah, yeah, go for it. All right. 1990, and this is from Ashley Hamilton's uh, book, which will come out eventually. Um, 1994 was a year of living hell. I lost the use of the left side of my body, except, hold on, except for some minimal movement in my leg from an on-purpose overdose of shooting coke and pills. I shot over a gram of coke at one time and took a mixture of a 100 pills that were all respiratory downers, including methadone, morphine, and Valium. I was tired of living as an addict, but I didn't have the strength to quit. I thought killing myself was the only way out. No matter how much I wanted to stop using, I couldn't. I was high all day, every day. When I awoke from my coma in the hospital, I had just enough muscle control to drag it along while using a crutch. My doctor was disgusted by me. What a waste, he said. I knew he was talking about the fact that I was a privileged kid who fucked up his life. That comment hurt at gut level, but he was right. It wasn't the first time I heard words like that. I, I reconciled the fact that I would most likely die from my addictions and that there wasn't really any hope for me. I believe the only way out of all this would be if I could pull the trigger to the gun I slept with underneath my pillow. I would have loved to blow my brains out, but I could never actually muster up the courage. Instead, I chose to die by slow suicide. You know? It's so crazy. It's like, I forget. Another, like, access. And that, that, that time right there, man, I, I had lost the use of my left arm for three years from that coma because I was on it for three days, four days, and all the blood circulation stopped and the nerves died. And the doctor said, what a waste my arm was never going to work again. Like, before I ever wrote, like, any hit songs or anything, I couldn't even move a finger. I couldn't move a thumb. They said it was never coming back. Everybody's called me Gimp, Gimp, Gimp. And, like, it came Who called back, you Gimp? Oh, my friends, you know, I first got sober again. It's, like, right around that time for the first five years. And then, like... It's just so brutal, like hearing that. Like I just, I don't even, I don't even think it's me sometimes, but I feel how heavy that is. And you just took me back to like, you know, that sense of memory of what that was like. And it's so, so heavy, you know, and so good for us to hear how bad it is, you know, because, we, you know, they always say like, try to remember how bad it is. But let me tell you something, man. Like the doctor told me this addiction doctor who used to deliver kids, you know, to the children. He goes, the most painful thing in the world 
in the world is childbirth, right? Childbirth. He goes, the girls are screaming, their hips break, they shit themselves, like I'm going to be doing in a few minutes, and it's the most painful thing in the world. And I say, never, 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 never again. For five months later, they're back pregnant. Right. You know, we forget. He goes, it's impossible for the human brain to forget, you know, how bad, how much pain. We think of the good times. It's the way the brain is built in, in the midbrain, in our old primal brain, so we can keep moving on. Like, and I... It's a great thing about being involved. That's why I say you have to get involved to stay sober because you see that on a daily basis and you're like, I don't want to go back to that because that's the truth of it right there, not what my mind's telling me. Right. And and that's the built-in forgetter they're always talking about. Ugh. My built-in forgetter is so profound, I even forget what they mean when they say that a built-in. <laughs> I swear, I, I always like, what do you mean a built-in forgetter? You know, but it's like that, the the... the childbirth description it's that this whole thing you forget everything you forget fucking everything and um and that's also why that story that you told in the beginning was so relevant you know you had foot surgery and then that that drug touches your your brain and you're like wait a second i remember what this is you know that was like a joke me and chris used to have all the time which was like one day when we were really old we would be like on you know dying or something and the doctor was going to be like you need some fucking morphine and i'd be like oh yeah i remember what this is like you know what i mean like and that's that's a beautiful idea for me like i'm 44 to not have to touch a painkiller until i'm dying on my deathbed you know because chances are things happen where you get put in touch with these incredibly scary forces that fucked you up at some point you know it's it's hard to avoid them wouldn't you say when you say like, evil forces, it's so true, you know. I don't like to scare people off, but it is like, it is satanic, man. It's the closest thing to true evilness. And it's so misleading, man. And you you know the darkness. That darkness is like, you, you hear that analogy before. It's like, oh, you're sober living in color. No, no more technical. It's fucking cold and that connection's gone, man. I know, I know what that feels like. I and mean, chances are, yes, we are going to die from this disease most likely. And I tell people that and they get all freaked out. But I'm like, but at least I'm going to do what I have to do to stay clean if I realize that. Like, and I don't want to go out like that today. And that's why I get so terrified about tomorrow because you, they put that stuff, even those old doctor, this and that, down in the hospital. Like, the disease, the disease of addiction, fucking, what the difference if it's or not or you know it's, it's okay by a doctor the disease doesn't know the fucking difference but let's talk about this for a second because this is a great great topic like what what can you do you know what i mean your sponsor just called you that tells me that you probably breached briefed him on everything that's about to happen you know which is which is pretty important wouldn't you say like, yeah your, your your crew knows what's going on you know what I mean? Because, like, yes, the, like you're going to have a lot of terrible shit happen tomorrow, but you're going to be totally guarded against the terrible shit taking you, right? Like, what's the, what's the plan to avoid it? Well, so here's the thing, and I talked to Chuck about it too, our love. Like, he had to do it, too, and stuff, and he's got to go to some other surgery in a few weeks. Like, the truth of the matter is, like, you look forward to it somewhere because you're a fucking dope fiend. You know, like, I would think about sometimes walking down the streets and get hit by a car because I'm like, oh, my God, that would be so amazing. You know, like, you could just be like, hey, actually, all paid expenses to the Four Seasons Hotel in Hawaii or Martin Luther King Hospital on a Demerol drip downtown. Right, <laughs> yeah. right, right. Number two, because that's, that's the vacation we want from the brain, like we were talking about earlier, trying to get. So it's, like, so scary, man, like... That, that never goes away, man. Anybody I speak to, that never, never goes away. That's how I know. Like, we can have this conversation, say how bad it got all this stuff, and then your brain goes, and thinks of that, you 
know, and it's so like, it's so always scary to me, man. You know, like I have, so I call, call him, I call my friends, I go do, I go do it, you know, check in, gonna be with them afterwards. Like, cause I just get scared, man. I've seen too many people die and have painkillers to go into something and then they're dead. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And you have so much good stuff going on. Now I'm going to give you the option, Ashley, where, you know, you, you've, you've stuck, you've stuck with me really well. Uh, and I think this has been incredibly amazing, you know, and I, and I appreciate every second, but I, you have a big thing you have to do. I'm going to give you an out. If you need to get off the phone, we can totally do another part whenever you want. The fuck? Great. I, I record in my attic. There's no big deal. Start, uh... I gotta start uh, sipping this thing in a minute, but I tell you what, like, if you ever get a chance, watch, um, even though it's only 10 minutes, watch uh, Will Smith on Motivation, man. It will blow you away. It's so powerful. Will Smith on Motivation, huh? Yeah. I heard somebody, my my friend told me about it. I will watch it, and you're gonna tell the Dopey Nation to watch that too. Will Smith on Motivation. It's so freaking powerful. It's 10 minutes. Ashley, this episode is gonna come out tomorrow. Awesome. Hopefully I'll still be alive. Yeah. So, like, what are we going to do? Can can we reach out to you tomorrow? Like, I'm going to reach out to you tomorrow. But like, for sure. I love that, man. Yeah, for sure. I know that, that the, the Dopey Nation is going to be, like, you know, very concerned. So, like, they can follow but, you on yeah, Twitter. That, what though. can like, they that, do? That, honestly, honestly, I swear to God, I'm not just saying that. That makes me feel even more – that makes me feel even, even safer because I'm like, okay, now – even more of accountability. Like, do you know what I'm saying? Like, I just, all the more accountability I can have and the more people that know is, is the better, man, because I've been out so many times, you know, from, like, having a surgery or, or painkillers, like, cause times of four years, times of three years, times of two years, there's always been that factor, and that's what's so scary about it, you know? Yeah, man, I think that this is actually, you know, this happened in a really weird way, but, like, it is accountability. It is, like, revealing yourself to a community that needs your help and that cares about your well-being. And I need you to come back on because I didn't hear about Shannon Dougherty, Rod Stewart, or, or your dad. And I need to hear about all that shit, too. So so I want to say totally, thank you. Totally. And it's been totally magical and cool to have you on the show. It's been awesome, man. I really enjoyed it. It's a lot of fun. It's, you know, it's not really, you know, it's rare you get to do interviews like this and get real honest and the other person gets as honest, too. You know, the actual host. Like, that's what's so... That's just so cool, man. We definitely, um, we definitely brought up the vibrations and frequency tonight for sure. Nice, and if you can get me some fucking DM too, man. Let me give you a mantra, you know, so you can start doing this. Yeah, get me some fucking mantra on the cheap from what's his face, Blue Velvet, David Lynch, cheap, cheap (laughs) mantras. Exactly. Hook it up, please. Uh, I'm gonna call you tomorrow, Ashley, man. Keep your fucking head up, and thank you. Thank you, brother. I appreciate it, man. Yeah, you too, man. Thanks. Bye. Bye. So there he was, uh, the great uh, Ashley Hamilton, part one. I look forward to part two where we hear about uh, the great Shannon Dougherty and the great uh, Rod the Mod Stewart and uh, George Hamilton and, you know, growing up in Hollywood. But what a crazy, dopey story. This guy had been to rehab 32 times. You know, I've been to rehab a handful of times. Chris had been to rehab 15 times. Ashley Hamilton has been to rehab fucking 32 times. So let's hope his colonoscopy medication goes well. And let's hope we can get him back on the show soon. Uh, it was really, really, really cool to have him on. And let me know what you thought about it. You know, write an email to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. Share your thoughts on Ashley Hamilton's first dopey appearance. I found him to be incredibly dopey. 
and also like really, really into recovery. That's an, it's kind of a new sort of um, take that we don't hear very often. Usually we hear from like an old timer or we hear from someone who's using or whatever. It's a new take. Um, now I'm going to play a voicemail. Uh, from a young man, a millennial listener named Tyler. Tyler recorded, uh, I think he recorded this voicemail three times. He recorded an 18 version, a minute version. Then he recorded this version. And then when I complained in the last episode about 10 minutes being too long for a voicemail, he changed it to a different five-minute voicemail where he kind of shit on me in the beginning. But I re-listened to the 10-minute version. We're going to play that. So here's Tyler with his Rehab Cakes story. What's up, Dave? What's up, Dopey Nation? Tyler calling in from California. Um, Pretty new listener. Been listening to the podcast for about two months now. Um... I had actually never listened to a podcast before, but one day I was feeling weird and I typed in heroin into Spotify and your podcast was the first thing to show up. And so I gave it a listen and at first, uh, the episode that I had selected, Dave, you made fun of, uh, millennials in it some way or another. I don't remember. And I don't even, I'm a millennial, but I don't like the term millennial. So I got offended and I was like, okay, I'm not going to listen to this. And, uh, long story short, I ended up going back, giving it another try, kind of like I did with heroin (laughs) and I got hooked and I love it, man. I think it's a really great show. And, uh, I kind of listened to the episodes in reverse order. So, you know, when I first started listening, this guy, Chris was already dead. And then as I went backwards, I got to know who Chris was and it became kind of emotional for me, man. And, uh, you know, it's crazy how well you can like get acclimated with people who you've never met on something like this. It's awesome. Um, so yeah. Um, you know, I have, uh, 20 months clean from IV heroin. I mean, I'm clean from everything, but that was my drug of choice, man. And, uh, I've had some pretty dopey stories along the way. I mean, I'm not like outrageously beyond, you know, anybody else who's been in that world, but I've got some pretty crazy stories and, uh, one comes to mind. So back in 2015, when I was about a year and a half into IV heroin use, I was out of jail. I had just gotten out of jail after four months and got kicked out of this girl's house. She had let me stay there for a little while, but I wasn't really cooperating with what she wanted me to be doing. And, She kicked me out, and I was floating around from place to place, living in and out of motels and people's couches and stuff. And so anyways, um, my buddy, who introduced me to shooting Dilaudids before I ever tried heroin, Kyle, calls me up, and he has six months clean, and he's in rehab, and he's doing good with his life. And I had never been to rehab, so I was like, Okay, I mean, every rehab that I've ever heard about costs like tens of thousands of dollars, but you're telling me this rehab's free. It's like, okay, why not? And he's like highly promoting it, like saying, bro, you should come along, man. Like, just we'll pick you up right now. It's a great program. It's the only thing I've ever been able to get clean with. So they come and pick me up, him and a couple of guys that lead the program. 
And what I come to learn is, is that it's a mostly Puerto Rican program. Most of the guys in there are Puerto Rican. There's like three white guys, <laughs> me, Kyle, and someone else. And, uh, you know, some of them speak English, but some of them do not. And so I wake up after my first day and I'm kind of sick, but not really, you know, like I wasn't like freaking out sick, but I was like starting to feel shitty. And they told me, you know, you can have two, three days here to see how things are done, we'll give you hot meals, and, you know, but we're gonna shave your head, and I was like, okay, that's kind of weird, but everybody else had short hair, and so they were like, yeah, it's normal, it's just a way of starting over, you know, like, it's okay, your hair will grow back, so they cut, they shave my head, they give me a couple days, but then I'm st- I'm pretty sick, like, I'm not fully detoxed by any means, and so the way this rehab works is... We go out on the streets five days a week, sometimes six. They drop us off in plazas, like Walmart or Target plazas, and they give us a hundred or so of these cakes that they bake in their certified, quote-unquote, bakery. (laughs) Now, this bakery is like basically just a kitchen inside of one of the houses. There's three houses and they make cakes every day in these little tins and they sell them on the street in parking lots, in nail salons, um, boutique stores, you know, like any store you can walk in where soliciting is like not explicitly banned. And we sell these cakes and say, Hey, you know, we're here representing a free rehab. This program helps save my life, getting our life back together through this program. And we stay open, uh, and keep letting addicts in off the street by donations from the public. Um, we sell these cakes. They're made in a certified bakery and we sell them for $5 a piece or whatever you want to donate from the heart. And so come to find out, We sell out every day. These cakes just sell like they sell and sell. And, you know, a third of the people don't a quarter to a third of the people don't even want the cake. They just say, we think what you're doing is great. You know, here's 20 bucks. Here's 40 bucks. You know, keep doing your thing, guys. And what I come to learn out is it's pretty ridiculous. You know, it seems like it's a good program at first. They do give you breakfast and dinner, but, you know. It seems like kind of a scam because I'm starting to notice, okay, well, these guys that have been here the longest are driving around in their Chrysler 300s, the head head honcho guy, he's got a Cadillac, they all have nice TVs, brand new iPhones, and I'm just like, okay, this is kind of a sham, man, like, what the hell? They let you keep some of the donation money so you can buy your own lunches and get hygiene products and clothes when it's approved, but after three weeks, I'm like, Kyle, man, I tell my buddy, I'm like, you know, I appreciate it, man. I think I'm good, though. I was like, after three weeks, I I got this, man. I'm like, I I don't, I don't, I'm not really vibing it here. I think we're going to, I'm going to pack it up. And he's like, man, don't go, bro. He's like, don't, don't go. And I'm like, dude, he's like, what are you going to do? And I'm like, I don't know. I'll go back home and get my old job. And he's like, bro, he's like, how about this? He's like, I have an idea. He says, I know where they keep the shirts. And I'm like, I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, dude, I know where they keep the shirts. And I know what the recipe for the cakes is. And I'm like, okay, so I'm starting to put together what he's suggesting. So we hatched this plan. And one day we wake up. I've been there for like three and a half weeks. We wake up. We steal a bunch of shirts and we bail and we've got money saved up. You know, I've got like a hundred bucks saved up and he's got a few hundred bucks saved up from his donations. And 
We hitchhike all the way back to Claremont, which is where we're from. Shout out Orlando. And, man, we get a motel at the same motel I was at, ironically, and we rent a (laughs) U-Haul. We go to the store, buy all these ingredients that we need from his recipe for these five different kind of cakes that we have. We go to the restaurant supply store, buy these cheap little tins, and we call up a buddy of ours. And we start baking up cakes in this guy's oven. We give this guy 50 bucks to use his oven. And we start baking up cakes. And we start wearing the shirts that have the name of the rehab on them. And we start selling them every day. As if we're still in the rehab. Except we're making all the money and we keep it all. And continue buying cakes. And we do this. But the problem is, we relapsed the first day we got out. And by this time, you know... Fentanyl was already on the streets It was starting to become more prevalent You know, it wasn't quite like what I encountered Later on, in down the road In like Minneapolis and stuff Where that stuff was just knocking people out Left and right, but it was sprinkled In there to the point where your tolerance Was getting up there real quick if you were already Addicted to heroin, and so It just becomes unmanageable And the funny part is, we were using the U-Haul for like the first month, right? And so, one day this kid, the the kid whose oven we're using, his mom comes home from work randomly and surprises us. And she's like, what the hell are you guys doing? She sees all these cakes everywhere. So we basically come clean to her, except we don't tell her we're high. We tell her we're still clean. And she's on board with this. She sees what we're doing, that we're pretending to be a rehab to be in rehab still and making money this way and she thinks it's a good idea for her son who's she knows is still using to hop on board so she goes and buys us a car to lower our expenses so we don't have to use a u-haul anymore we continue baking up cakes you know but the whole thing starts falling apart after about another month the kid that we were using his oven he just doesn't know what the hell he's doing You know, Kyle and I are decent at selling the cakes But this kid is just like nodding off While he's trying to sell the cakes And we're like, dude, we're gonna get caught this way There's no way we can keep this up So, and then we start fighting over dope and stuff And racking up our motel bill Falling behind, you know And then one day <laughs> We're driving And Kyle's just like super faded Behind the wheel And he's Nauseous he starts getting nauseous And he throws up outside of the car And lo and behold right as soon as He sticks his head out the car to throw up His brother who's a police Officer of the neighboring county Drives right by us and sees Him throwing up he doesn't stop Us because technically he can't he's not in the Same jurisdiction but he calls His supervisor and tells him that he knows Where Kyle is because Guess what Kyle has a felony warrant For that county Not the county we were in, but the county that his brother works for. And so he gets snatched up pretty quickly. And I can't, you know, I can't run the whole operation by myself. I can't bake up all those cakes and sell them all. So I started to take a different path, man. I moved to Boston eventually. The whole thing, it fizzled off after about two and a half months. But, man, it was a wild-ass ride. Super dopey. Um, man, I really love your guys' podcast, Dave. I think it's awesome. I love the premise of it. You know, I think it's a great thing that you guys are doing. So, with that, uh, stay strong, Dopey Nation. Toodles. So, thank you, Tyler. That was an amazing voicemail. 
And Tyler should be an inspiration to all of you guys because he sent in a voicemail. And he even went far enough to send in different versions. I suggest to send in a shortish, shortish and Swedish fucking voicemail that's dopey, that's funny. Voicemails are my way to hear from you guys. You know, you send in a few voicemails, we play them, and then maybe you come on the show. But this is the easiest and most effective way to hear from the Dopey Nation. So if you guys want to be on Dopey, send me a voicemail and make it funny. Make it snappy. uh, Make it interesting. Please, just do it. Thank you for doing it. I love hearing from you guys. Also, there are uh, new fucking Dopey skull hats, whatever you call them, wool hats, beanies. They are available. I have a new fucking kind of hat available There's t-shirts on the website. I love it when you guys buy gear. It's good to make money, but it's even better for the exposure. So send in a voicemail and buy some dopey merchandise. Now I'm going to read an email. You know, I'm not trying to make this a big dopey commercial, but I never talk about our products. And, you know, I think it's really, really cool whenever I see people online with dopey gear because it really means that dopey exists and, uh, you guys know we cracked the million download threshold, and I think when I see you guys in dopey gear, you know, I'm obviously not making any money on this show. It's just there's something about, uh, I don't know, it's cool. I love it. So here, I'm going to find an email. All right, I got this email from Australia. It came in, actually, I think it came in this week. It's from a guy named Bentley. And he writes, greatest podcast ever. Hi, Dave. Loving the podcast. I found Dopey two to three, two or three months ago and listened to your latest episode. I was instantly hooked, so I went back to your first episode and started listening from the beginning. I'm close to halfway through your episodes. Yourself and Chris worked together so well. I was laying around at 1 a.m. and thought I check on a new episode, and that's when I heard you said Chris passed away. I literally cried. I feel like I know uh, you both. It's insane. Enough about that. Time to tell you a little about myself. Everyone calls me Bentley. I'm from Australia. I am currently just over two years clean off meth, MDMA, and benzos. Still smoking weed, though. I had been to rehab once and jail twice, all before my 17th birthday. I talked my mother into letting me start selling drugs. I ran an open house, which is when anyone and everyone can come to the door and buy some drugs. I was almost 14 14 years old when I started the open house. My first tactical police raid was when I was 15 years old. I ended up in rehab for 90 days and on remained in jail for four weeks. Second raid by the police was when I was 17 years old and I ended up in jail for 90 days. Then I had to do an at-home rehab program. 6 p.m. to 7 a.m. curfew. I couldn't leave the house. Piss tests on Wednesday, Monday, and Friday. Counseling three times a week and I had to go to court once a week too. This is all for, for a year. So this was all before I had a meth problem. Rehab was just for weed and benzos. Obviously, I couldn't smoke weed due to piss tests, but I figured out I could do meth and drink heaps of water and it would be out of my system. So basically, the whole time I'm doing piss tests and counseling, I'm cooked off my head on shards. I have a lot of good Australian drug memories I would love to share with the Dopey Nation. Hope to hear back from you. 
uh, regards Bentley. Well, it's a crazy uh, email, Bentley. Are you clean now? What's your story? What are you using? Where are you at? Are you aware of Gabby and the rest of the uh, Australian crew? And speaking of which, where is the Australian crew? When we started doing the show, there was this guy, I think his name was Maurice, and he told a story about uh, a guy named Ivan that he found passed out in a phone booth. And uh, and I think after Chris died, Maurice sent in this crazy, angry email, like, I don't know, shitting on Dopey or angry that Chris had died or ang- just angry. So, Maurice, if you're still listening, I don't think you are, but if you're still listening, drop me uh, a line. I would love to hear from you. And uh, any old school Dopey listeners, I love to hear from you, whether you be uh, Leah Lemberg, uh, fucking... Whoever you might be, whoever you might be, Tina, fucking whichever Troy is still alive. Who is the other guy that uh, that popped into my mind that uh, I used to? Oh, fucking Joey Pepper. I heard from Joey Pepper recently. He hated uh, the Anna David Anthony Boza episode. I don't remember if uh, I don't remember if I read his email or not. Let me find his email. I'm going to read it again. Hold on. Here's the here's the, the last Joey Pepper email. I always love to hear from Joey Peppard or Pepper or whatever his real name is, whoever the hell he actually is. What's up, Dave? Hope you're good. Joe Rogan fucking sucks. You are way better than Joe fucking Rogan. But I totally agree with Roger, that was the Norwegian guy, and Justin about 164. The guy that wrote the books with Slash and shit was cool, but the rest of that episode was totally whack. Drug story interviews with horrible drug addicts and a little recovery is what I like to hear, but that's just me. I just now listened to 165 because the last episode was so boring, I almost forgot about Dopey. But 165 was good, Killer Mike was awesome, Run the Jewels is the only hip-hop group I'll listen to. But anyways, I just feel the need to lay down my two cents about Roger Said. Peace out, Dave. Merry Christmas. No more literary episodes, please. Joey P. There he is, the great Joey Pepper. Um, I don't know. I think that does it for us. This is a, an extended Dave Alone section. Uh, please write in emails. Write in um, reviews. We need reviews, okay? Write in reviews. Something weird happened last week where there's this guy who I guess he has a pretty you know, a pretty substantial blog. And he, he, he wrote some sort of link, um, describing Chris dying and the episode that we did just after Chris dying. And because I forgot his name, hold on, let me figure out his name. Yeah. I heard from this guy, Adam Golden. I don't know if that's his real name or not, but there's a guy called caveman circus who posted about, um, the episode after Chris died and somehow because caveman circus posted about it, it gave like dopey basically its biggest downloading day ever, which was like, I don't know, 7,500 downloads. So you guys, you know, this is an example If you guys want dopey to get bigger. And maybe it's more of a message for me. If I want dopey to get bigger, I have to find places like caveman circus and somehow tell them that something that we had on the show is worth playing. And I think Chris dying is, you know, it's a story. It's a story like that worth telling. Um, I actually had a dream the other night where I was, um, I think I had taken NyQuil, 
but I was uh, I was in bed and I was sleeping, and I had this dream that um, wasn't really a dream. It was more of a dream that Chris was talking to me, and um, he was kind of annoyed that Dopey was getting big. He was kind of like just totally Chris, and he was just like, "Wow, you you have a your podcast is getting pretty successful." And I was like, and I was kind of annoyed with him in the dream. And I was like, dude, you know, like, what the fuck? And I could tell in the dream that Chris, um, he was, you know, I know that Chris would have loved to see Dopey blow up. And I know that if Chris is in some afterlife watching Dopey blow up, he's proud. And I also know that he'd be annoyed because he would have uh, loved it as much as I do. And, um, of course... There isn't a dopey fan that doesn't miss him and doesn't wish that he was still alive. So um, there are other stuff to talk about, but I don't remember what it is. I think this is a perfectly good place to end. Leave a review for Chris. Write an email. Tell me what you think about the alone Dave time at the end. What do you think about Ashley Hamilton? I thought he was pretty great. Uh, what do you think of the voicemail? Uh, did you like my my commercial for dopey merchandise? But before we go, I also want to thank this guy, Ryan. I don't know if he wants me to say his name or not, but he sent me this really cool fucking, I don't know, it's almost like 10 inches tall and like 40 inches long, an inch thick fucking concrete stone plaque that says Dopey with the classic Dopey logo, and then it has a crack in it. And it just looks like the Dopey Liberty Bell or something. It's super cool. If you guys are doing Dopey art and you're not sending it in, that would be, as my mother would say, a Shonda or a shame. It's a Yiddish word, Shonda. Um, Fucking send in Dopey art. Make Dopey art. Make Dopey music. I'll play it. Stay strong, everybody. And toodles for Chris. See you next week. I want to take a walk around the world. Until I get some money in my pocket, then I guess I'll just have to walk around my neighborhood. But I want to be good so bad. want to be so good, so bad, so bad. I want to be good so bad. Bad desire's all I ever had. And I want to take a ride up in the sky. Aeroplanes just pass me by And I want to see a Lear jetliner take a dive Just to show all of these people What it means to be alive But I want to be good So bad Want to be so good So bad, so bad I want to be good So bad Bad desires All I ever had And my shadows get Smaller, smaller, and it's time to where I stand. Shadows getting smaller and smaller, and it's time to where I stand. And I wonder would they pay it any mind when I leave this busted city far behind? I'll take the high road, however far it winds. Because peace and love are very, very, very hard to find And I want to be good so bad Want to be good so bad, so bad I want to be good
all these suckers make me mad And it's all I ever had And it's all I ever had And these suckers make me mad And I want to call my dad And it's all I ever had 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 And these suckers make me mad And it's all I ever had And I want to call my dad And it's all I ever had And it's all I ever had